Welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 4 Rowing Around Imrama. Episode 3 Imrav Ikura The Voyage of the Ikura. Urawan, once upon a time, in the dear and beautiful land of Khan, there lived a wealthy man and his wife, who wished for nothing other than a healthy child to make their lives complete. It sounds like the beginning of a familiar fairy tale, and so it is. In a way, the birth of a child often seems like a fairy tale, at least for a while. But this couple is different. They don't just sit and wait, sit and wish. The would-be mother doesn't sigh passively at a window, musing on a child with hair as black as a raven's wing and skin as white as snow. She doesn't just discover a baby no bigger than her husband's thumb or make an unwitting and accidental contract with an unexpected goblin or disgruntled witch. No, they both wish for a son, preferably a hero child, who will grow, as is usual, at twice the rate of his peers. They wish this son to be a wise warrior, a champion of his people. Well, who wouldn't wish for such a son? Sadly, you can't always choose what your children will be. You must wait and see how they turn out. Oh, but this couple are not content to wish and wait, to see what might happen. This determined couple have a plan. They decide that it is the devil who is most likely to give them what they want, and they know just how to set about getting him to oblige them. They follow the old custom and shame the devil into giving them their heart's desire. They begin to fast against him. Now, this is an old custom and largely forgotten even in fairy tales, if you had a grievance against someone of high status, a king maybe, or his chief poet, someone you couldn't hope to take to law, there was one way you might get your problem addressed. If you gave notice and publicly fasted at their door, your opponent could not eat, drink or sleep, could not even say their prayers while you remained fasting. Well, not without becoming all a lost, and that was a serious matter indeed. It was an effective way of getting a point across, in most cases, and perfectly legal and above board. How it would work against the devil, I cannot imagine, and our story does not tell. Preventing the devil from saying a paternoster, well, that hardly seems effective. But however they managed to swing it, their plan worked. Before long, and after the usual time, the Brogid and his delighted wife found themselves cradling not one, but three sturdy male babies. And in the best possible fairy tale tradition, the three boys grew into tall, strong, brave, generous young men, possessed of every skill and accomplishment. Oh, no one had a bad word to say about them. These paragons were everything their proud parents had hoped and planned for. And the happy ending? Well, not yet. Not for a while yet. Not for a long while and a long journey. 
for no one had thought to inform these three young heroes of the unusual circumstances of their birth. And there was no fairy godmother on hand to rescue these boys. The devil's gift was to have a twist in the tale. Well, we have to start this in Rob on Dry Land, just like we did last time. Yes, uh, we have to give it a little bit more context uh, before we can actually take to the waves. I suppose the other difference is that whereas the previous Imrama was centred around kings and chieftains, mm. this story begins with a brothers, doesn't it? It does. Um, and just to kind of remind our listeners, the brothers was the highest status person within the sort of agricultural the top social of the tree. tree exactly top of the farmer tree one of the prerequisites for being a bugger was that you had to be able to count your property in hundreds and this is said of our protagonist cows. but also that you then need to offer hospitality to anybody who comes your way indeed your house has to be at the meeting of at least three roads mm -hmm. so that you can offer hospitality to travelers so, so this is not just an innkeeper a bit more than that yeah exactly it's, it's a social duty really that you know when you've made that much wealth and kept that much wealth that you're at the top of this tree you have to share it you have to with absolutely everybody and yeah. who is our brother then well this brother is called Connell the Red and he's said to be a descendant of Curra the Fair <laughs> and this is the Curra of the title the mm -hmm. E Curra would be the descendants of Curra. it's their family name exactly yeah so it deals with this family specifically Mind you, this text has a very sort of different tone from the two we've already examined, haven't we? It does, yeah. I, I think it begins almost like a traditional fairy tale. Yeah. And indeed, our brother is described like a fairy tale king. He's happy and he's wealthy and he's wise. Yeah, but I think it's a bit more than this. He's almost an exemplar of this brother class. Exactly. Isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And so much so that he's uh, said to have these triads, if you like, of good things and the first is described as the three cries oh yeah he's got the cry of the strainers straining ale the cry of the vassals of over the cauldron serving meat to the hosts and the cry of the warriors at chessboards winning game from each other they're well, almost like word pictures they, they are very much going yeah, on the in, details in his hostel yes exactly uh, but they are very interlinked with hospitality i mean just think back to the description of brick crew and his feast oh and, yeah you know the things that are right for a brother's feast for a and brother's just house. how much he has to provide oh yeah absolutely and in terms of the actual provisions he's said to have these three sacks never too was his house found without the three sacks a sack of milk for preparing yeast a sack of wheat for preparing bread and a sack of salt to make every food taste well yeah that's amazing so if you look at the three cries mm. you've got one to do with drinking yeah one to do with eating yeah. and one to do with entertainment exactly so you've got a bit of everything mm. and then you've got the other one bread and beer yeah what else could you want exactly and then the salt is really important mm. there's even a medieval uh, saying in from england about being below the salt because salt was so expensive and so important yeah. that if you were below the salt, you weren't quite top drawn. Right. You weren't quite on the top table. Okay, yeah, that's it's, it's not below a, the salt. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> that's not a phrase I'd ever heard before. Off the top so, table. Yeah, yeah, it's a very interesting one. Because salt was so expensive and so desperately important. So valuable. Absolutely. You remember the whole Cordelia thing in um, King Lear? Yes, where she I says, love you like "I love you like salt." salt. Exactly. Yeah. You know, because without it, yeah. nothing There's has savour. Exactly. Well, I'd mentioned the triads, and oh, yeah. they're a favourite of um, particularly what's known as, if you like, the wisdom texts. Um, but law texts also, they
they loved triads and they loved heptads as well which are groups of seven um, but I did find in the text that's been gathered together as the triads of Ireland, I found three that I thought were really nice that, that seemed to yeah. fit in with what we're doing. The first one is the three preparations of a good man's house. Mm -hmm. And those are ale, a bath and a large fire. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. Then there's the three shouts of a good warrior's house. They are the shout of distribution, the shout of sitting down and the shout of rising up. <laughs> So in other words, get food, shout a bit, yeah, stand up, exactly. sit down, that's great for Exactly, uh, that's what a warrior's house should be like. And then the three welcomes of an alehouse, which are particularly nice, which are plenty, kindliness and art. Yeah, that's really good. And I think it means yeah. you've got that, it's more than entertainment, mm. it's a good ambience as exactly. well. Something yeah. to be surrounded by beauty. Yeah, yeah. So that was just that's as important nice. as, like as the food and drink, yeah. We mustn't forget Colour's wife. No. I mean, she's pretty central to the story. She is. Uh, and her name is Cairdereg, uh, which means a red berry, which is really Lovely. rather nice. She is the daughter of an Erinach in uh, the monastery of Clogher. Now, how are we going to explain what, what job her father has? I mean, Erinach. Yeah. We do come across the term quite a lot in this text, don't we? Yeah, we do. And again, her father is does play a role in this story as well. And um, the term itself seems to derive from Archinach, which means the kind of the um, head steward. But it is a monastic term, mm -hmm. uh, although the position is not necessarily held by someone who's in has taken monastic orders. So he's not a cleric. Not necessarily. Um, I think that he's he's seen as a cleric within the context of our text. Yeah, it does seem to be a clerical term in this text. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But he does appear to have a very high status daughter. Absolutely, yes. The wife um, of the, the uh, wife uh, of her brother. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So that is high status. But then, you know, we need to slightly think differently about early monastic communities because they weren't necessarily under oaths of poverty and chastity and what have you. I mean, just look at Cullum Kill. He came from a noble family. He, absolutely. And he behaved as a noble right throughout his life, you know. So, but the status is not necessarily connected to that clerical position. And I always get the feeling that uh, you had to have quite a bit of money to get into the monastic system in the first place. Well, I we we have referred to them before as universities, yeah. you know, and uh, you could be pretty sure that if you wanted to get into the best At university, period. then you'd yeah. have to pay quite high fees. So in this text, he's more like the steward of a monastic estate. Yeah, I think that's the best way to understand the job, if you like, and that it is a job. Although, again, as we'll see in this text, there's a lot about, you know, clerical life and holiness and what have you. So yeah, well, that's just this text. Exactly. But anyway, more on that later. Yeah. Let's get back to Redberry. Yes, let's. At the opening of this story, as we heard, um, Per Derrick has no children. Well, rather, she has no mm. living children. She's been having children that die in infancy, uh, that don't survive. Do you know, that reminds me of someone that we've discussed before. Do you yeah. remember Clothru's sister, Ethno? Ethno, exactly. There was a suggestion that she was either mutilating or killing her children. Yeah, well... It's a pretty weird story. It was, and, and, and very intriguing. And we did, when we were discussing Ethnu and Clothru, um, we did find that Ethnu was referred to as Ethnu Uothuk, which mm -hmm. is the, you know, the horrible, the terrible, whatever. There was this kind of sense that she was uh, mutilating her children. Or even an eater of infant flesh. Exactly, yeah. Now, in the fitness of names, it said that she was Uothuk because she was fed on the flesh of infants in order to kind of make her grow up quicker so that she could be married off with a this good bride really, price. Really, really, really 
unpleasant. But then, as we found, there's other things whereby she seemed to be maybe cutting the tips off the little fingers yeah. of her children, but that she was doing this to try and ensure that they would survive infancy, yeah. that they You've wouldn't got this die. Weird hints of a fairy tale witch, mm. and yet not so. I yeah. mean, strictly speaking, she's trying to prevent her children dying. Exactly. So it's yeah. Just... But there seems to be this transference that she just then gets associated with children, children who die, die in infancy. Yeah. You know, and yeah, I get a hint of that from our Caradhairg, and you know that she has children, but they don't survive. Yeah. So. This is odd because this Redberry situation, the way it's described, it sort of has the quality of a European folktale. A bit yeah. of a Brothers Grimm situation. Oh, yeah. What she does is to deal with the devil for a child. Yes. You know, she goes to the devil and tries to do a deal mm -hmm. in order to get a child. Yes. A bit like, you remember the story of Rumpelstiltskin? Although it's yeah. not a devil. Yeah. But she offers a deal in yeah. order to get a child. Exactly, yes. Yeah. And so then the child somehow belongs to the person that has Rumpelstiltskin insisted. Exactly. Unless, uh, unless she can guess his name, she yes. loses the child. Yes. Well, it has those European fairy tale elements, but there is a very distinctly early Irish twist to it and that is that in order to make this deal with the devil they go and they fast against him. Now we've met a little fasting before. We have we? and, and you, you might have come across it being referred to and it, it is a very interesting practice. It's essentially a legal practice yeah. within early Irish law and it's a way of getting legal satisfaction from someone who is of the highest status, the nevid status. So that's kings, that's the head poets yeah. and the heads of the church. Someone who couldn't be got at any other way. Exactly, yeah. Someone who is far too high above you for ordinary legal procedures. Um, and so the way that you deal with it is that you give notice. This all has to be done very publicly. And you fast outside their house. Now, there isn't really any indication of how long the fasting might go on. Uh, one text seems to suggest that it might only be a fast from sunset until sunrise. So don't try it in the wintertime. Yeah, because that would be a very long fast. But um, the important thing is that the person you're fasting against cannot eat, also can't say their prayers. And if they're a cleric, then they can't say mass. And so they can't take communion. You're imposing a kind of public... Uh, yes. restrictions on them that they sort of have to obey whether they want to or not exactly and if they don't abide by the rule of fasting they risk losing their honour price entirely which and is really serious it's really serious it makes them a legal non-entity a non-person yeah. so for a chief poet or a king yeah. this could be catastrophic it is absolutely catastrophic I you... wonder what effect it would have on the devil <laughs> well this is it obviously the devil is someone of nevid status otherwise he couldn't be fasted again <laughs> we have moved into a world with a different ambience here haven't we yeah and absolutely the laws that apply to chief poets yeah. and, and uh, Irish kings yeah. now apply to the devil himself absolutely yeah, yeah. Well, of course, in a pre-Christian context, these people would be fasting against the ancestors or the other world people. They fast against the other world. There is a story where there are, I think, three brothers, um, although I can be corrected on that, who fast against Oingus Macandog oh, at Bruna yeah, yeah, in yeah. order to get their land to which they're yes. entitled. Yeah. So it certainly does happen there. But any child that is then kind of gifted from or drawn from the other world is this immense boon is very very high status mm -hmm. you know and this is a sign particularly of a special child and there are plenty of examples 
There are indeed. And the Birth of Lou in the, the Welsh and the Irish. Exactly, obvious. yeah. Uh, there's also one which is kind of the third Aideen down from yeah. the Aideen that we talked about, is known as Mesbuchla, which is uh, the esteemed one of the cowhands, basically, who is, because she's a child of incest, left with a litter of dogs. And so she's found among the dogs uh, and then. As it's Brunary, or is it falls off? He's, uh, yeah. yeah, but it's the same thing. It's the sort of the, the hidden child in the animal found stall. Found with animals, yes, yeah. yeah. Hidden child in an animal school. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, of course, we do also have the birth of Mungan, which we were talking about recently. Yeah. You know, this wonder child with other world parentage. Yeah. So, know. Red Berry and Connell get exactly what they asked for. Well. But then, just like buses, you wait for ages and three come along all at once. Exactly. <laughs> it's a bit like modern fertility treatment, isn't it? That you end <laughs> so up with multiple births. Get one births. from the devil and you get three at once. Yeah, oh, exactly. Dear. So, they, they get three sons. Than get one, get one free. Buy one, get one free. Yeah, bog off. Um, yeah, so they get these three sons anyway, triplets apparently. You know, there's still resonances with mm. Clothru or Ethna. Yeah, and that they're both Connock stories. They are indeed. Yeah, but Clothru has well, it's not exactly. She doesn't get three sons. Mm. She gets one triple son. Exactly. Yes, and this is look at the Re of Neric with the red stripes, um, who has three different fathers, and it's shown by the different stripes across his exactly. Body. Yes, and the, <laughs> which is just. Yeah, it's a wonderful image. <laughs> it is really, isn't it? Yeah. So whether you've got a triple son yeah. or three sons, yeah. well, in same this case, kind of thing. the same thing. Yeah, yeah. That's what comes from going to the other world, isn't it? I know, yeah. <laughs> Careful what you ask for. Their three sons are given, it says in the text, a heathen. <laughs> but I presume they mean traditional pre-Christian baptism. Yes, yeah. And they're given names. Exactly. And those names are given as Lochon, who seems to be the oldest and the speaker mm. for them. Then there's Aena. And finally, Sylvester. <laughs> which just is utterly confusing to me well, well but as a matter of fact there are several popes named sylvester mm. and in fact the first the second and third of that name mm. seem to date from around the period of this text well that might have been where it came from you know but i suppose it makes some sense it does and I, you could render those names as a little lake for lochon a little bird for Anna, and sylvester is woodland, woodland so yeah so very rural yeah quite pretty yes and so these three sons from the devil or the other world, whichever you like, grow up as good hero sons. They're strong and they're brave and they're beautiful and everyone yeah. loves them. Strong on land and sea and outdoing all their peers in every fair discipline. Of course. Until something really strange happens. Yeah. Oh, yes. <sighs> Apparently, one day they discovered that they were given, whoops, a non-Christian baptism and are therefore dedicated to the devil dun, dun, dun. and this means that because they're dedicated to the devil they have to be bad yeah and they have to do evil deeds yes. even though it's never crossed their mind to this way before it, and this is so peculiar <laughs> but it colors it drives the action of the rest of the story way it says in the text yeah one day when they were leaning on the side rail of the bed in their mother and father's house wearied with charging and hurling the people of the house said they found neither fault nor blemish on these smooth, delightfully, greatly famous sons. <laughs> They've only their baptism into the devil's possession. Yeah. And they've overheard this. Yes. And they go, oh no, what should we do? We've got to do bad things from yeah. now on. It just seems so odd. It is very strange. Well, you know, this is a little bit like Congo Koich, who we were discussing before, who ends up having to... <laughs> 
you know, commit battle against his great friend and, you know, superior king because he ate an unlucky egg. <laughs> well, yeah. yes, that's right. The one that was robbed by... From, from a saint who... From a saint. And a poor Congal eats it. Yeah. And it's a cursed egg. So yeah. from now on, anybody who eats that egg has to be an enemy to his friend. Yeah, so yeah. So he goes, oops, oh, I better be an enemy then. Exactly, yeah. It's... It's just weird, isn't it? And yeah. this is exactly what the three boys do. Yeah. Now they suddenly have to rob, plunder, kill priests, burn churches, yeah. and be good little devil's children. <laughs> if you're a wonder child of the other world, you're bound to your people to serve them and but you might do good things or bad things. You could mm. make mistakes or become cursed. You might ultimately be, you know, bound for heroic failure. Um, but I don't think we have found before this very kind of cold and clinical sense of predestination yeah, it's, towards it's, good or evil in that way. It's odd, but mm. you know, we may be being unfair because mm. to me it sounds like a memory of the importance of Gesh in yeah. the stories. That Gesh is so central to a lot of the old mm. stories. Yeah. And maybe the, this uh, understanding of Gesh has become confused and blended mm. with a almost half understood Christian doctrine. Yeah, but the the, the stories where which are driven by Geshina or Gesha um, have, I think, a different flavour to them. That what you find is that the person under Gesh sort of does everything they can to try and overcome, the, you know, ad, an evil fate. But and it still catches up to they them. They will fail in the end because them. it's Gesh. You know, as soon as there is a Gesh introduced into a story, you know that it will be broken at some point, even if it's by very contrived accident. Like you know, like Kukul and eating dog flesh and, yeah. you know, all that kind of thing. But the person under Gesh does not then go, oh, well, I'm I under no Gesh choice. now. So now I've got to go and just immediately break the Gesh and yeah. then suffer the consequences. It's it's a different quality. Yeah, there is a different mm. feeling to this, isn't it? That mm. I have no choice. Yeah. My fate, therefore, I must submit to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think Cahulla ever submits to his fate. God, no. no. <laughs> he maybe should have once or twice, but he definitely didn't. <laughs> right, so off they go down in then 17, sort of all the way to tomb. Oh, don't sing. Please don't sing. <laughs> anyway, they get there and they burn and wreck the place. Of course they do. They're, that's their job now. <laughs> but uh, after a year, it says that they have destroyed one more than half of all the churches in Connacht. <laughs> one more than half. Yeah, exactly yeah, one more of, than half. Yeah, it's a sort of 51%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's almost like that year and a day thing. Yeah. You know, it's definite. Yeah, exactly, One, yeah. they've done it, and then they've and done they a little one bit more. more. Just to make sure. Yeah. Um, but they decide that even with all of this wonderful pillage and, and uh, all the rest of it, they still haven't committed the ultimate, ultimate crime, which, of course, is kinslaying. Yeah. So off they go to try and kill their grandfather. <laughs> and this is the error enough that, that we were talking about before. Yeah, they're starting to turn into stereotypical Norsemen. I know, they? yeah, it is. It's very much like a Viking we will go, you know. And, of course, that would have been a paradigm of the time, you know, that there was this idea of these rapacious pagan yeah, Norsemen. So poor sons, these lovely children. Yeah. They can't help it now. They've yeah. got to go and do bad things. Exactly, yeah. Well, they get to their grandfather, who is this, position this steward of the monastic mm -hmm. holding and he offers them hospitality um so he seems to be the brugard within the monastic context yeah well that makes sense yeah and in fact in this text he's given quite high status 
Um, and as I said before, that might be because his family seems to be, you know, of brugged class. And so, so he's high status anyway. Exactly, yeah. It's it's not necessarily connected to his but clerical three role. Boys, three boys have to wait till night time. Oh, yes. Because kinsling is oh, it's the worst thing they can do. Exactly. So they, they wait till the night. Of course. But their grandfather is wise to them. And he yeah. knows that they intend bad. Well, presumably their reputation <laughs> precedes them. Yeah. So he takes them to a special set apart place, and this is a Grianon. This is a sunbower. Well, know. a bit like the one that Ungus made for Aidy. Exactly, yeah. He put them into a fair sided shining silver, and food and ale were taken to them so that they became exhilarated and mirthful. <laughs> Afterwards, couches and lofty beds were spread for them. Oh, yes. He seems to have taken on the role now of a sort of wonder worker. He's doing something druidic rather than monastic. Yeah. Uh, it, it seems to be redolent of the this idea of the poet's bed, which I think we get That's from... why I called it druidic. Exactly. And we get this from things like Cormac's glossary. But however you might term it, he's, he's certainly brought them to somewhere so that they can have visions and he's given them enough booze to ensure that that happens tell, anyway. Tell me about this poet's bed, because it's often misunderstood, isn't it? It is. Now, I'm I'm not 100% certain of it myself. I know that modern descriptions talk about, you know, going and lying down somewhere in the dark uh, in order to have a vision. It's it's part of the Tarvesh of, of mm-hmm. Tara, uh, where the, the poets are expected to see a vision of the new king. Um, but it has to do with kind of going away somewhere secluded and, you know, waiting for a vision and who knows what they did in order to try to in- induce those visions. But we have to be very wary whenever we come across these... Something de- from Cormac's glossary. Exactly. But all of these descriptions of, you yeah. know, rites or practices, because as we've seen before, they can be misinterpreted. I mean, my one is the Tenem Leute, um, which is usually understood in terms of chewing of sinews Mm -hmm. but i think that all it means is analysis of verses Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know so i think it's that kind of thing whereby they tend to be imbued with more mysticism it's the metaphors used by poets yeah to communicate the way they work exactly yeah and poets will use imagery yeah yeah. use imagery and we you know understand each other's imagery yeah yeah and then suddenly it sounds as though you're doing something really remarkable yeah yeah. you're just going away to have a think exactly chew chew over the fact yeah you know there we are or just discuss it yeah exactly yeah well anyway it works it does yes (laughs) lacan gets a vision of heaven and hell Mm -hmm. i like this he says I was born away to see heaven and also hell, a place wherein there were abundance of punishments <laughs> on throngs of human souls and on devils. <laughs> so I saw the four rivers of hell, even a river of toads and a river of serpents, a river of fire and a river of snow. <laughs> I beheld the monster of hell with abundance of heads and feet upon it, and all the men of the world would die of seeing it. <laughs> Thereafter I perceived that I was born away to gaze at heaven, and I beheld the Lord himself on his throne, a bird flock of angels making music to him. Then I saw a bright bird, and sweeter was his singing than every melody. Now this was Michael, in the form of a bird, in the presence of the Creator. Which starts as very Dante Inferno. Oh, it does. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a sort of medieval Church of Rome type of view. Yes, yes, I think so. And this would have been kind of new, if you like. It would have been exotic. Exactly, yeah. Very fancy. But you've got the Irish birds. You always have the birds and they're really very important. And we've found this throughout the Imrava. You just cannot leave out the birds. And they still have the familiar kind of Irish otherworld elements. Their their songs bringing healing and, and sleep. 
um, and even the transformation of a dead soul into a bird. They've now got storytelling and prophecy. Exactly. There's so many stories in which people are turned into birds or where birds lead them, you know, to and from the other world. Exactly, yeah. I mean, we saw in Aideen and Mither how they eventually left this mortal world, if you like. As swans. As swans, exactly. Uh, but then you also get ones like Conor Amor, who is the sort of main protagonist mm-hmm. in the Togol Vridendal Derga. And of course, that's... Which we may well have one of these days. We'll, 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 we'll girt our loins. And we'll meet a lot of Geshe. Oh, God, yeah. That is the Gesh par excellence. <laughs> but Conor is led sort of into this by a bird flock that mm-hmm. he's hunting. And then they turn into people and say, you can't kill us, we're your family. Mm-hmm. And similarly... Um, when Dethna and Krohur are going into the the other world to get Kuhulan, um, they're led there by a flock of birds. Mm. You know, they they are real psychopaths. Yeah, so they are the transformation between mm, this world and the other world. Absolutely. So it's hardly surprising that once you have a Christianized version, mm. they become angels. Exactly. Yeah, but they they always feel more bird than angel. Yeah. This know? this archangel Michael as mm. a bird is interesting. Mm-hmm. I keep getting this Egyptian human-headed bird. Oh yeah. I'm not sure whether that's right. <laughs> As a result of this vision, um, there's a complete turnaround in <laughs> Lohan and his brothers. They are now fanatically repentant and nothing <laughs> will stop them in their attempt to flagellate themselves and obey, oh, right, yeah. give obeisance and all the rest of it. So off they trot anyway now to St. Fintan, um, who is described as the foster father of Ireland. Mm-hmm. Now that might be the term Adja, which can mean teacher, but certainly he was the head of the University for Saints, yeah, which we talked about before. Columbus, where Colin Kills was trained. Exactly, yeah. Best place if you want to go to a saint, be a yeah. saint. If you want to train as a saint, you've yeah. got enough points to be a saint, yeah. you have to go to Columbus. Exactly. It was the trinity of its day. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> But uh, when they get to Clonard, uh, all of the monks and clerics, they see them coming and they run away. <laughs> well, you're not surprised. I know, yeah. Obviously, again, their reputation has preceded them. They go, no, they're going to murder us and burn all our stuff. But St. Fintan doesn't run away. And the three brothers genuflect to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he puts them in isolation for a year. Yeah, well, I yeah. love the comments the monks make after this year about yeah. the improvement in their manners. Oh yes, they're so nice. Always so. so thankful for it, they say. <laughs> so thankful for the improvement in their manners. I know. I'd sort of wondered whether this might have been a sort of a Christian response uh, to the Viking pirates. The early who, Vikings. Yeah, yeah. Who, who of course were the first contact that Before the Irish had. Before they turned had. into the best shoppers in Europe. Exactly. Yeah. All over the world. Yeah, yeah there, was, there was some raiding parties and they particularly hit the monasteries because yeah. that was where all the wealth was, of course. And then made Dublin into their slave capital. Yeah. So they weren't always nice traders. Well, no, but they were overwhelmingly traders. But those first Viking raids had a big effect on the Irish mm. psyche, you know. So um, so it seems interesting that the improvement in these pseudo-Viking raiders is given as them, you know, learning some manners. Manners on them, yeah. These boys are still not satisfied oh, with their year's isolation. <laughs> so uh, they decide that they must do more penance, but also reparation. And so they set off to rebuild this 51% of all of the churches in Connacht, uh, but that they set themselves this task of doing it in the same length of time it took them to destroy. So they They've have got to, to do, do it. All in a year. Exactly, yeah. Well, and now the church can help. Yes. 
I love the way Finton, the saint of Clonard, yeah. hands out a sort of magical blessing mm. that sort of gives him superpowers. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, it's almost superpowers, almost reminiscent of the Dagda or Mither. Yeah, and they're a great time. He says that they will not tire in rebuilding of the churches mm. so they can do it at that rapid pace. Yeah. And what's more, he they will not suffer yeah. in the task. I find that quite odd. That's very interesting because it definitely puts it in the category of reparation for a crime and not sort of punishment. And it sort of seems quite clear to me that what Lachon seems to want is the punishment, you know, mm -hmm. but it's actually Finton who's kind of restraining that and saying, no, you can make right what you did wrong, but you're not going to suffer excessively for it. Mm. Yeah. Well, it takes me a year to repair all but one of the churches. Of course, and yeah. They either forget Kimvara or Kimvara gets left. Yes, yes. yeah. But once they've done that, they've mm. done their year in a day. Yeah. So again, it's 101%. Exactly, yeah. It's this, you know, they do everything and, and a then bit a bit more. more. Yeah, which the Irish always love. They always love the plus one. You know, sort of, <laughs> yeah, no, so uh, anything you can do, I can do it that little bit better, but only 1% better. <laughs> yeah. Well, once the reparation is done, something really interesting mm. happens. I really like this. They take to wandering around being philosophical. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and they start wondering things like, where the sun goes when it sets yeah. or why the sea doesn't freeze. Yeah, yeah, I love this. Um, I think it's sort of the turning point of the story in that it, it becomes a positive quest at this stage. This kind of thirst for knowledge that obviously you get from the monastic communities, you know, yeah, as yeah. these educational establishments. And it's this kind of scientific curiosity about the yeah, world. Yeah, and I think it does reflect the positive results mm. of the monastic society. Yeah. Um, you know, that leads to a modern scientific thinking once you've got rid of the Middle Ages. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I yeah, yeah. You could argue it both ways, but yeah. there is something very positive going there on is, here. Isn't yeah. There is, yeah. And the result of this is that, you know, in wondering about where the sun sets and so on, or the sun goes when it sets, they find a craftsman to make them a three skinned boat. Yeah, they decide to go and find out for themselves. Exactly, yeah. Let's yeah. go and see. <laughs> So presumably this is a boat with three layers of hide, mm. similar to the one used by Tim Severin. In his um, wonderful Brendan voyage. We did mention that when mm. we were dealing with Bran. Yeah. Well, the craftsman who's built the boat, he seems very taken with this idea. Mm. And so he asks whether he can come with them can on I the come, voyage. Can I come and find when the sun goes? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Actually, it's a bit like Argus who builds a boat for Jason. Yeah. You know, the Argo. I mean, he went on the voyage with mm. them. Now, I just, just thinking this is a total aside, but mm. interestingly enough, in 1984, Tim Severin also traced the voyage of the Argonauts yeah. in a reconstruction of a Bronze Age galley. Mm. I suppose, you know, this is kind of experimental archaeology. Yeah, it kind of, it started, I think, with Tor Heyerdahl oh, in 1947. He did this mm. wonderful Contiki voyage. And later the Rob. The Ra boats, boats, yeah, yeah in we, 69, 70. Oh, don't get me off the line. Yeah, one. but it really is. I mean, between Tor Heyerdahl and Tim Severin, they did kind of invent experimental archaeology. We owe them an awful lot, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure there are people, there are archaeologists before who would have said it goes back much of further. Of course, But it's yeah. a good example. Yes, yeah. Um, but the next thing that happens for our brothers, anyway, um, is that a band of minstrels come by mm -hmm. and uh, one of the minstrels wants to come with them once again. Can I come too? Yeah. Now he's, I, I would describe him as a musician and a satirist. It's translated as a jester, but I don't think that really yeah, yeah. kind of gets across what his job is. But um, he's only allowed to come with them if he leaves his, his professional costume behind. And so he shows That's all his clothes. Yeah, exactly. So he shows up uh, for uh, the journey fierce naked 
Do you know that's a colloquial Irish phrase that's still current? Yeah, and it's the oh, best. fierce naked. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. fierce naked. That's it, you can yeah. do it better like her. I can't give the right but, accent. But that's a more or less literal translation anyway. <laughs> and of course the brothers are a bit taken back. Uh-huh. I suppose in a way his professional costume has to be left behind. Mm. It's almost... Uh, metaphorically his human identity that yeah. he has to leave behind yeah and any kind of attachment to earthly things because right. there's far more metaphor mm. even allegory mm. in this than we've met previously yes. and we're going to see it getting stronger and stronger Absolutely. Yeah. so I think we have to accept a sort of allegorical symbolism yeah, yeah, for his costume mm-hmm. Yeah, it's still funny yeah it is wonderful <laughs> and then one more thing before they leave they have to build one more church oh yes yeah they build this one on their own land don't they yes and it says for their own sake as well it's almost like their little sort of guarantee that they'll get into heaven in the end this is their earthly work done. exactly yeah that leaves them free then to go off and explore things and of course, that are there's memory left of them there is this wonderful theme of the sort of historical evidence you know the things that prove that this really happened and yeah, there is that feeling that by building a church and then leaving, they're, you know, making sure that they'll be remembered. Mm. Um, and there's other parts in the story which, again, have to do with that kind of gathering of evidence, you know, mm-hmm. and sort of proving that this really happened. So finally, we have our voyagers gathered. <laughs> At last. Exactly. Now, they have to, of course, bring a bishop, a priest and a deacon. Yeah. You know, no ship's crew is complete without them. Then there's also a servant, yeah. who I think is the servant of the ecclesiasts um, and then we've got the three Ikura boys mm-hmm. and the musician satirist who came along with them and of course the shipwright mm-hmm. and so they get together and of course they set sail with a prayer for good weather so and yes. <laughs> we've finally got to the Imro yeah here we go <laughs> and being a very Christian text they sail undirected mm-hmm. and there's a storm and then they're swept out to sea exactly. as you would expect naturally and now they row around for the familiar biblical number of 40 days and 40 nights oh yes on the ocean yeah. so just like Noah or Jesus in the wilderness mm. not that he was rowing around on the ocean no but it's another wilderness yeah and I suppose the, the, the thing is this passage could be read that either they row for 40 days before they meet anything mm. or that their entire voyage yeah. takes 40 days and 40 nights exactly I, I can't quite decide which it is no and i it mean doesn't really matter. no may, maybe it's it's open and now we get to the first island hooray <laughs> right well they're all going to be islands and wonders yes and there's 23 of them yeah so yeah, buckle up <laughs> And the first is an island, as I said. Yes. Now, this is an island that is full of people who are all wailing and weeping and in the throes of awful sorrow. And one of our crew of nine goes ashore to try and find out what everyone is so miserable about. But he can't talk to them. He just takes to wailing and weeping himself. But unlike in a couple of our other Emrova, the rest of the crew just leave him there. Bye. Yeah, just leave him behind. That's the end of him. You could call this let's say the island of sorrow Sorrow, yeah um but it's really one of three because there's also an island of joy that same thing happens really yeah exactly except this time it's this sort of idiotic laughter but then there's also an island which usually has a woman with a precious vessel of drink 
that puts everyone to sleep. Which is interesting. Yeah. Because that is really familiar. Mm -hmm. Because there are three strains of music yes. that always get played, don't they? Yeah, I mean, yeah. for instance, could play the three music, the exactly. three strains. Yeah. Um, one is to make people laugh, yeah. one is to make people cry, and the other is to send them to sleep. Yeah. The Gantraga, the Goldtraga, and the Suantraga. Yeah, and those are the, the three famous mm. strains. Exactly. And here we have the same thing, mm. but in Ireland. Exactly. So there has to be some connection. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of, if you like, a native... The image. other thing is with Brian, as you said, that, that they, they go back for people. Mm. No, they won't leave a man behind. Yeah, yeah. They don't seem to care. Yeah, yeah. They just dump them off. Yes. <laughs> um, but interesting, that's what happens with the Argonauts, for mm. instance. People do get left behind. And yes. they gradually, there are less and less of them. And that's yeah. why someone founded that colony. And yeah. that person stayed there. Yeah. And Hercules set off to do that. And yeah. So on. Yeah. So it just made me wonder, is there a hint of classical influence now? I, yeah, I think we will find in this that as well as that blending of sort of Christian and uh, Irish imagery, that there is also a good dose of the classical. Yeah, mm. no. There's definitely an awareness of yeah. it. Oh, yeah. The second is a wonder. Hooray! The musician who so carefully decided to come with them, yeah. he probably dies. Of course. Yeah. Now, they're a bit sorry and they mourn for him, but mm. I don't know what they do with the body. No, well, presumably just push him over the side. But suddenly a little bird lands on the gunwale and says, What's wrong? And they tell him that they're mourning for the mu musician. And he, he says, Oh, no, I'm the musician. Mm. And I'm on my way to heaven. So you must be sad. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> and off he goes. Yeah. It's kind of cute. Yeah. <laughs> but this again, here we have the, the bird as a messenger and also as the sort of transfigured soul, if you like. This poet, the croissant, was it? it yeah, he's termed a croissant, yeah. Uh, a satirical poet? Yeah, it's um, in those terms, yes, a satirical or sometimes slightly racy. Uh, poet performer uh, but the term interestingly enough originates as it just means cross bearer mm -hmm. from church processions so again there's some there's a sort of ecclesiastical tradition underlying yeah, you know, this entertainment. that interests me because it's akin in some ways it reminds me of the origin of the mystery plays mm. the English mystery plays which yeah. are in a way one of the main sources of English drama yes because yeah. they began with one passage in the middle of the Easter Mass yeah. you, know, you know with the question and answers mm. of the, the women at the tomb oh yes and yeah. is he here he is not here that yeah. was basically the, the centrepiece mm. of it and from it the that the, these um, acted pieces got mm. longer and longer yeah. until the church threw them out into the street because yes. they were full play. Yeah. It just gives me that feeling. Yes. Yeah, I yeah. have no idea whether mm. that's right. Mm -hmm. But I think what we can be sure of here that we've got this first line of this soul. Mm. Yeah. It's halfway between this other world bird and yeah. the winged angel. Exactly. Number three is an island. It's another island. And this one is a very, fairly generic, I would say, other world island. It's full of apple trees and it has a river running through it. And of course, these apples will cure any illness. And uh, the sound of the tops of the trees in the wind makes beautiful music yeah, for them. Rather like the apple branches that made the beautiful sound. Exactly. Yes. Apple these are just the familiar healing apples of Mananon, yeah. aren't they? And, but it's interesting that the tree of Genesis, although it's usually recognised as an apple tree, mm was probably a pomegranate yeah and when you've seen all the pomegranates on trees in turkey they just look more like apple trees than apples yes <laughs> and of course you've got that connection with the other worlds and the yeah. pomegranate you know they're eating the, the pomegranate so seeds yeah. yeah um but yeah i've always thought it was odd that eating the fruit from the tree of genesis mm. didn't really, really work out too well in biblical terms no it didn't uh but yet within western tradition we still have this image of the apples that are 
life-giving and not, you know, sinful and all the rest of it, you know. Mm, they probably owe more, in fact, to the golden apples of the Hesperides yeah, than yeah. The, the, the apple of the Bible. There. Absolutely, yeah. And number four is another island. It is, and this is one of a type we will meet again. Uh, it's an island which is divided into four with fences. And in one quarter are people, they're described as grey or grey-haired. Mm -hmm. They're the, the wise, the elders. The clever ones. The clever ones, yes. And then the next one has the nobles, the third has the warriors, and the fourth has the servants. Mm -hmm. And once again, someone from the crew goes on shore uh, to talk to them. But once he gets there, the, he suddenly looks disgustingly ugly beside the residents of this beautiful island. So it's definitely another world island. Yeah, this is very classic other world stuff. Yeah, it just reminds me of the way the Reese's book Celtic Heritage divides, and not just them, but divides the island into provinces. Yes. Into four provinces, which is right, but has their characteristics which match. That. Yes, yes. And I don't think they're alone in that. Yeah, yeah, that idea of, you know, Connacht and learning, I think, Ulster and uh, warriors, Leinster and farmers, and then Munster with the servants. Or women, or the fairy folk. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. sort of microcosm of Ireland. Yeah. But once again, visitors left behind. Yeah. Number five is an island. Another island. And this one's got a pillar. Uh, oh. It's one that's very similar to the island where Snake is, or even one that we're going to find with Maldoon, yeah. isn't it? You can hear stuff. Yeah. But you just can't see anything that's going on. No, because it's not much, not much else to say. About no, that one. it's just up on the top of a pole. Can't see it. The sixth. Not an island this time, but no. a wonder. Yes. And this wonder is described as this rainbow river full of fish. And uh, we're going to meet something very similar, once again, once we get to Mildoon. Um, but what's curious about this is that the, this rainbow river is only available on Wednesdays, Thursdays and Fridays, which in Irish is Cédine, Dérédine and Ina. What those literally mean is first fast, second fast and fast. <laughs> so it's where you can get your fish Yes, on, on days you days. can't eat meat, which exactly. you're not going to find much meat in the sea anyway. No, exactly. And uh, oh, you, the river tastes honey as well, doesn't it? Does, it does, of course. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, of course it would. What else would it taste of? <laughs> okay, enough said. Yeah. The seventh, we've got another wonder. Mm -hmm. But this one's interesting. It's another pillar, mm. but there's a great silver and bronze net hung down from the top mm. of the pillar, right down into the sea. Yeah. And there's a lot of silver in this one. Oh yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty shiny and pretty valuable. And it says that Lohan reaches out and he takes a little bit off this net. It says it's three half ounces worth of silver and of this Findrive, which is often uh, translated as, as white bronze. Um, but he kind of takes it as evidence that they had been there once again. Uh, but the text now says that this is the same as the one that Mueldun saw. So here we have this explicit reference mm. to the Mueldun story. Mm. And a lot of silver. Oh God, yes. <laughs> I'm sure they weren't sorry about that. Number eight, the cleric. <laughs> oh, I should have said, sorry. Number eight is another island. It is an island, yes. This is the first of many, many, many clerics that they're going to meet on their journey. But on this island, there's just the one, uh, and he's, the island is full of these ginormous red flowers that are all dripping honey. Um, oh, baklava flowers. I've <laughs> just come back from Turkey. Yeah. So yes, in this island of baklava flowers, uh, but there's also this great flock of singing birds um, and the cleric says that they're holy souls, mm. keeping him company, but that he says his name is Dara, 
which I can only assume means good in the same way as Bagda means good, but that he was a disciple of St. Andrew, and that this is where he is waiting with these holy souls for company until the day of judgment. Right, so he's been given his place, that's where he stays. Yep. Now the ninth is an island. Welcome to hell! Now this is a horrible island. It goes dead men in one part of it, living men in another part. They uttered great yells and awful howls whenever the enormous rollers of red flame of the fiery sea came over them. Great and vast was the plain wherein they were, and their feet were bound with bands of iron. Thereafter the pilgrims rode till they saw the heavy fiery flagstones and there was a huge host burning with fiery spits right through them. They were uttering grievous yells. I think I would too. <laughs> the pilgrims were asking, what, what were the flagstones? This is a flagstone of the flagstones of hell, they said. And we are souls that fulfilled not in the earthly life our judgment of repentance. Hmm. And tell everyone to save himself from this flagstone, for whosoever cometh here departeth not until doomsday. <laughs> until doom. Yeah, I mean, this is just so utterly different from what we've found before. I mean, the central issue seems to be sort of going and dying unabsolved, you know, yeah. not having had your last rites and your final confession. Um, but it is really very seriously different from our contact with the other world before. What we've always said. Yeah, the, one the other world is, is completely non-judgmental. And all the poems of man and on, they all say how they're there without sin. You know that basically there is no judgment. Yeah, there's no last judgment. Exactly, that the, everyone is the happy two together. Two worlds stand there uh, in the past, the present, and future yeah. together. Yeah, it's not this. Uh, mm. No, it's a big, big difference. It is. Yeah, yeah. So now and we're into the realm of eternal damnation. torture. Yeah, and we're going to meet a bit more of it. Not mm. just yet. But no, we'll, we we have a bit of a respite. Yeah, thankfully. On the tenth <laughs> island. Yes. Well, this is an island. This is essentially the sleep part of that mm -hmm. sort of triad of joy and sorrow and sleep. And in this one, a woman comes out from a bronzed fortress, it says sort of a bronze palisade or whatever, um, but she's got a vessel of well water with her and she distributes that to each of the company. And uh, they get whatever flavour they like best out mm -hmm. of this water. Um, and it, it soothes them and it puts them into sleep. Um, but they also eat cream cheese, mm -hmm. um, and the, but the woman does say to them, you can't stay here. This is not where you will find your resurrection. <laughs> and so she tells them to go away. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> but it, we're almost back to the typical other world imagery. Exactly. Particularly this cauldron of abundance. Yeah, yeah. That the well, they're giving them the water, but yeah. this is, a, you know, our Douglas cauldron. Absolutely. The, probably beer. Yeah, yeah. Not, not water. Yeah. And um, I love that bit, though. <laughs> It's, it's other world imagery except for the phrase about the resurrection being another place. Yeah, yeah. Because suddenly you've got this Christian concept of bodily resurrection. Yes, yes. So you have to make sure you know where you you have to die in the right place. Yeah, yeah. Or you won't wake up in the right exactly, place. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Which is, seems very strange to us now, you know. But it's also quite alien to mm. the other world. Absolutely, yeah. Irish, the early Irish other yes, world concepts. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. just isn't what it's about. Yeah. Well, the 11th. Uh, is still a wonder. Yes. And uh, we're still in sort of respite from well, the vision of hell. In recovery, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, they, they, they see this wonderful multicolored bird flock, mm. and then one of the birds lands on the boat and yeah. talks to them. Of course. 
Now this bird is described as having three bright rays on the front of her breast. So it's mm. three sort of bright colours. Mm. And she says she's a monkess from Ireland. Yeah, I'm not sure about monkess as a translation. <laughs> that seems just, yeah. A lady oh. monk. Over contrived. It is, yeah, it? it's essentially saying because you know there there were mixed orders in in Ireland previously, and the nineteenth century translator just couldn't quite manage it. Yeah. So my guess. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, she says we're not going to hell. Yeah. You'd think Lacan would be relieved at this. Yeah. But he still says they deserve to go I know, to hell. He he's still on this total, you know, over repentance <laughs> bender. Well, anyway, they, they, they follow the birds, don't they? Yeah, and the birds then lead them to this another island. Uh, but on this island, there are three rivers. And it said that there's a river of otters, a river of eels, and a river of black swans. Mm -hmm. And this bird with the three bright rays explains to them that all the birds that are with her are actually damned souls that mm -hmm. have been let out of hell on day release for a Sunday <laughs> but because they're only on day release they still are pursued by demons even when they're on day release exactly yeah but I don't know does she mean that the otters eels and swans are actually the pursuing de devils well I think it's not very clear sort of you know it's not made explicit but we know that otters eels and swans are all these creatures that go between the worlds yeah well, of course black swans are Australian and weren't seen by Europeans until the late 17th early 18th century yeah I don't think it means that no I don't think it does I think it's just saying that because these are hell creatures this, where a swan would usually be white and graceful and seen as, you know, this pure thing. He's an evil swan. He's a swan. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. Well, of course, the brothers ask their future. Yeah, but the monk can't tell them that. But she says, there's someone else who will. Tantalising cliffhanger. So... <laughs> Well, yeah, and then she actually goes on to tell them more about herself mm. because her she gets her three bright feathers mm. for tending her husband in sickling. Yeah. Uh, I like this again. I will tell you, said the bird, there was a man in this world whose wife I was, <laughs> and I did not his will, and I clave not to lawful wedlock. But when he was sick, I was not with him. But I did go three times to visit him, mm. once to see him, another time with food, and the third time to attend him and watch him. Mm. So for those three times... I, I, I have got the beautiful rays in my breast. And had I been with him, all my colour would have been like that. Yeah, yeah. So she's punished for um, not holding her uh, marriage. Yeah, not not being a dutiful wife. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, this is very interesting. We've come across sick lying before, uh, very particularly in the story of Aideen, uh, when she's in her this-worldly form, and she tends to her husband's brother, mm -hmm. um, who's another aloe, in his sick line and again there's all this sort of going three times and you know she bathes his his hands and his face with water and so on you know so uh, i think that it's yeah. an interesting echo of that so she may not have been a dutiful wife mm. under christian canon law yeah but she obeyed the old law yeah yeah and, and that is remembered exactly yeah that so there's almost like this reward in the midst of a punishment but i mean it's, it's kind of odd to have this story when she when she's just said she was a monkess Mm. you know and is speaking to them as another cleric um but then talks about how she didn't do well in the mortal world so mm. it's but an then it wasn't altogether um the vow of chastity exactly is a late that's thing, very it? late exactly exactly and in fact you know that there is um provision in some of the law texts 
for a woman to that she can legally divorce her husband if he takes holy orders because it is very difficult to be the wife of a man who's married to the church yeah, yeah. you know so uh, yeah it, it certainly wasn't uh, and celibacy sort of, wasn't always quite God practice no, 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 no so it's not as obvious it could sound no no right the 12th is an island it is and this is just a really beautiful island it's full of birds and bees and trees and flowers and in the midst of all this is a harpist who's playing to all of the birds and they're singing back at him and it's all just happy and lovely sort of memory of other world beauty it is almost a stereotypical description of you know the beauty of another world place yeah but after this we get back to the punishment yeah back to hell well, that's the end of our lovely little respite. It's now back to a series of islands. And wonders. And, and wonders, indeed, which are all depictions of hell and the punishment of sins. This is very much about people who have broken canon law. And these seem to be specific to the Ikara. They are. This is unlike uh, any visions from the other uh, Imrova, including Nagas and Macriag, like, yeah, yeah. you know, so this is very particular to this text. And these could really match episodes from Dante's Inferno Absolutely. and a similar ambience. Now, we're not suggesting that the texts are in any way leaked, No, we? no, I mean, they're, they're of different periods, you know, they're very different sources, but it does seem to reflect part mm. of a European sort of cultural idea. Okay, let's start with the Sing the Horrors. It's like encountering a load of safety adverts yeah yeah absolutely the 13th is a wonder mm -hmm. they meet a solitary man rowing with a fiery spade and as he rows the fire rolls over him and he screams in constant agony <laughs> and his crime rowing on a sunday <gasps> shock the horror how could he 14th this, another wonder. This is another wonder. And what they see now is uh, he's called the Miller of Hell. And it's this great monstrous miller. But what he's grinding are gems and treasures, but also cows. And he's grinding them all up to dust. And when he's asked about it, he says he is punishing people for the sin of meanness and lack of hospitality. Yeah. Now, this is more like the old... Uh, rules about the horror of poor hospitality. Exactly, yeah. It's a very serious business. Yes, it is, yeah. And so, you know, the things that people hoarded and didn't share are therefore ground up to nothing, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the great sins of in Dante's Inferno. Yes, is, uh, yeah. It's mean those it. who hoard yeah. and those who spend too spend much. Too much yeah. And those who, yeah, 15th is another wonder. Mm. They meet a rider on a fiery horse and he says, I stole a horse from my brother and I rode it on a Sunday and I'm being punished for that with, with, with a horse of fire between my legs continually. And that, that is the punishment for everyone who rides on a Sunday. <gasps> now, this is totally beyond the beyond as far as I'm concerned. This is someone who has stolen from his own brother but this eternal punishment is because he rode on a Sunday. Yeah, if he'd have stolen it on a Saturday, he'd have got away with it. Well, if he'd stolen it and then ridden it <laughs> on a Saturday, yeah, exactly. He wouldn't be punished eternally in hell. I mean, this really, I think, reflects the the context from which this this story comes. This is uh, reflects things like the coin dovnig, which is the law of Sunday. Um, now, this is very similar to another text of the coin adovnon, the law of adovnon. Um, and this is essentially coming from a, a small sect within uh, Irish Christianity, which are the Cáil Day, 
anglicised as coldies, and they were a very kind of extremist, austere sect. You know, they would have approved of Lacan's... Extreme monasticism. This is extreme monasticism of a different kind. Last time it was sitting on rocks. Today it's to do with, you know, doing absolutely nothing on a Sunday. So, you know, it was it was significantly different from other law traditions mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. Ireland. But there was this kind of this, I suppose, I would think of them as fanatical sect. And so, yeah, the worst thing they, they could do... They were certainly austere. Yeah, yeah. But the the trouble is, they they, they, they the, the Sunday laws were applied to people also who were not, or could get applied to people who were exactly not were not coldies exactly or not part of the monastic tradition. Yes, yeah, exactly. And again, it's unclear how much those laws were ever enforced. Mm. But there certainly were texts, and again, this one, Coin Dovnik, which is a law text entirely about the things that you don't do on a Sunday and what the appropriate punishments are. Mm. And some of them are, you know, the death penalty for doing things on a Sunday. It's not even that bad in the Outer Hebrides. Yeah, yeah. You know. It really isn't. Yeah. So, again, it's something that uh, we can't really go into here, but that yes. is the context that gives us, you know, a story that punishes a man for riding on a Sunday rather than stealing, which is one of the other Ten Commandments. It does throw into context the difference Mm. between the shall, shall we say the earlier stories mm, mm. and uh, I mean hospitality yeah, is a yeah, big thing yeah. well I don't think Cahullan was ever worried about uh, riding on the Sunday God no mind you he wouldn't have worried about stealing anybody's horse either well no but <laughs> but Sunday didn't even come into it that's very yeah. true 16 is an island another island and this is one uh, where they meet a load of dishonest uh, smiths and braziers and they're being punished for bringing shame on their customers rather than for any particular work practices. It doesn't say anything in this yeah, about yeah. Sunday. They are being torn apart by blackbeat birds. So uh, yeah. It's, it's not very nice. No, exactly. There's still a punishment. But again, it's it seems more in line with the native law, which has to do with, you know, the honour of customers and being honest and, and uh, yeah, producing good work. Bringing shame on people yes. by poor, giving them poor quality work. Exactly, yeah. Is, is shame on the customers. Yes. Because when they use the thing, it might break. Exactly, yeah. And their honour is damaged. Yes, yeah. By having bought something of bad quality. Yeah. Yeah, now that definitely is. That has more of a native kind of law, is yeah, it? Yeah, no, it has more of a native flavour to it, all yeah. right, yeah. The 17th is a wonder, mm. and again, this, this one I want to read again from the text, because yeah. I think this one is significant. Mm. Thereafter was shown them a huge giant, vast, as, and as big as a weather's fleece was the lake of fire that came out of his gullet, so he's spitting fire. Mm. In his hand, an iron staff, which was as large as a mill shaft, a bundle of firewood on his back, the load of a team of six thereon. Every now and then the bundle would blaze, and he would fling himself under the sea to escape the flame. But it was an increase of punishment that he would get from the sea wave, because it was fire that rose over him, and then he would scream, enduring the agony that would come upon him. Now that's really horrible. It is, and again this is a punishment for work on a Sunday, but the description of this figure is very familiar to us. It could be Kuroi, it could be Sadagda, you know, it could be Ogma from Maitura, who's punished by, by going to gather firewood. Yeah, it really almost feels as though a, a, a well-known and well-loved mm. Gazizio, particularly Sadagda, oh, yes. was one of the most loved of the uh, yeah. pre-Christian figures. Yeah. And it's almost as though it's a deliberate and vicious punishment yeah, yeah. applied to a pre-Christian character. Yeah. And you don't often find that. No, you I certainly don't. I can't think of don't. anywhere else. Mm. 
usually he turns into like the golden Sir and all yeah, these yeah. stories yeah. He, he becomes part of folklore yeah, yeah. but this almost feels deliberate yeah yeah it does feel like taking something that is that familiar and well known and turning it in saying that this thing is now evil yeah and you you meet time after time you meet um you know characters are punished they act to pieces or they fight mm. and they're torn apart yeah but there's never this deliberate um oh well you know vicious torture yeah yeah this yeah. continual eternal torture yeah, yeah you would never find anywhere else in, in the old story not not in the irish no no they i mean yeah they'll hack each other to death yeah yeah cut each other's heads off oh ah, yeah but they usually well, that's get just better. a bit of fun <laughs> yeah <laughs> there is a very different feeling mm. that 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 it, it doesn't sit very well no the 18th is a wonder and I really feel that this they're getting close to the heart of hell now. Yeah, yeah. The description is that they find themselves on this fiery sea, but the sea is full of human heads that are still alive. They're sort of floating around in this fiery sea Clashy and clashing together, together yeah. you know, but that they are still alive. And Lochon describes this as an abode of death. And this is very dancing. It is. In fact, one of the lowest of circles hell. of hell. He finds heads in a frozen sea and those mm. are still alive and they're attacking each yeah, other. Yeah, so very close. Um, and one of the things that happens here is that a worm eats its way through the first of the three skins on the boat. And their brothers are a bit scared. Of course they are. They're sort of going, oh, we're going to sink into the lake of fire. But at this point, Lochran actually says, no, we're not going to die here. And he reassures them. But we still have that li the little blemish in the boat as this reminder of mortality mm. i think you know all the way through he keeps saying we deserve yeah. to go to hell we deserve to go to hell mm. and now they've reached the bottom mm. it's almost like he goes no there is redemption yeah and there could be redemption mm. even for us yeah and after this the imrov seems to change it gets easier yeah they... well, it certainly moves towards into a transition from punishment mm. towards prophecy yes although yeah. There are more heavenly islands mm. again after this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think it is a turning point that it is kind of re reaching the very depths of torture and, and punishment. It, and again, that would fit the allegorical message mm. that even someone like Lacan yeah, yeah. can be redeemed. Exactly, yeah, yeah. You know, but he has to accept his redemption, mm. which would make sense in Christian terms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've sort of got to the point now where, as uh, the brothers, particularly. Lacan uh, yeah. has accepted forgiveness for himself. Yeah, he can now return and accept the gifts of grace yeah. in his terms. Yes, it's hard really to be anything other than flippant with all those revolting, yeah. all the awful tortures and punishments. Yeah, yeah. But in his terms, he mm. has to go through that dark night. Yes. Anyway, look, let's come back to that. We will. End. Yeah, we'll talk about that again because for now we're going on to some nicer islands. <laughs> yeah, and the nineteenth island is particularly interesting because it's just pleasant. Yes. <laughs> and they get to spend a week there. Yeah. And what's more, there's a lake monster which completely fails to attack them. <laughs> so it's almost like, wow, yeah. they've come out, he's, he's gone through that dark night, mm. reached the abode of death. Yeah. And he has a week off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I suppose you'd need it after meeting all those sinners and hearing about the heinous, oh, uh, Sabbath-breaking, yes. horrible crimes. So exactly, yeah. It is that gap. Mm. Uh, so I suppose we've reached the reached the real real transition. Yes. So we've reached the twentieth oh, island. Yeah. It's an island. Yeah. But from now on, we sort of feel as if the Imrov is beginning to come back to reality. Yeah. Because they now find themselves on an island with a recognisable monastic community. Yeah. It's a very human place, or almost anyway. Yeah. And 
It's actually a named community. Yes. What is it? The uh, Alva... It's Alva of Emily. Emily. Yeah, and that's With community. Well, holy monks. Very holy monks. Yes. <laughs> and uh, But the, the, the wonder of this island is mm. the two wells, mm. one stagnant and one fresh. Mm. And the servant quite understandably wants to drink from the well, presumably yeah. the fresh well. Yeah. Um, but even that, the brothers insisted he must get permission. But they're also warned that they can't stay on the island um, more than just overnight. They have to leave before morning, otherwise they'll never want to leave. It's too nice. <laughs> because it's too nice. But uh, that it's not the right place for them. Their you know, resurrection is elsewhere. elsewhere. Yes. But as they're going to leave, uh, the servant once again wants to take a few stones from the beach, sort of as a, as a memento. And once again, Lacan insists that they get permission, that they ask permission mm -hmm. to take the stones from the beach. But when they do, they're given this sort of interesting little, it's not exactly a prophecy, but it's, it's a, a warning. Or a conundrum, yeah, a puzzle. Exactly, yeah. That um, yes, they can take stones from the beach, but those who take them will be sad and the ones who didn't take them will also be sad. So they'll be disappointed whatever they choose to do. Exactly. Lacorn now, he's quite the opposite of Brian, if you remember, Tip Brian. The um, son of Turin, yeah. And he always seeks permission, yeah. whereas Brian never got permission. No, absolutely right not. No, he'd, he'd sort of break in first and get permission afterwards. <laughs> They're going to leave this island anyway before morning, but the servant, once again, he'd like to take some stones from the beach, and once more, Lacorn insists they should go and get permission. And so they go to the clerics on the island and they ask permission and they say, yes, you can. Yeah. But be careful. Uh, he makes this little prediction or warning. It's a little puzzle. Yeah, it is. It's a little yeah. sort of, uh, yeah, little puzzle as well. Um, that those, they can take stones from the beach, but those who take them will be sorry afterwards. And those who don't take them will also be sorry afterwards. So a few, some of them take stones, some stones. of them don't. And uh, they, I think it's a bit unclear in the text, but I yeah. think they leave the island before morning. And take the water they with take, them as well. Yeah, exactly. Because it says that they fulfilled everything, including leaving before morning. Yeah. But then it says that after the sun came up, they drank from the water that they had taken and all promptly fell asleep. On the boat, we think. We think, it's but not it's really not clear. It's one of those times when, you know, they weren't paying too much attention to chronology. Um, so this is how I picture it mm. anyway. So they, they fall asleep, but when they wake up after an hour or two, um, they see that the stones they picked up from the beach are gold and silver and gems, essentially. And this is why the ones who took these stones are didn't. then sorry they didn't take more, and those who didn't take the stones were sorry that they didn't take any. <laughs> so yeah. that's the warning fulfilled. It's a very odd passage. Mm. Um, it's almost the opposite of fairy gold. Yes. Usually yeah. when you take something away mm. that you think is gold yeah. or precious, yeah. it turns into dead leaves yeah, you yeah. Know, and rubbish. Mm. And here you've got exactly the opposite. Now yeah. I think what's going on, it's suggesting it's more allegorical mm. that um, if if you, you, you ask, you get the gifts of the spirit yeah. given to you. And if you don't take any, mm. you regret it. Yeah. But if you do take some, you mm. wish you'd taken more. Yeah, yeah. I think it's meant to be allegorical. Yeah. It just comes across as a bit obscure. Yes, yeah, yeah. It is a, a bit tricky from that point of view. And it goes on like this. The 21st island yeah. is much the same. Mm. It's another generic island. Mm. Uh, only this one is a Christianised Otherworld's island. It's definitely Christianised. Yeah. Now, now there's churches and 
old man, an old man singing psalms. Yeah. Almost as though if now the other world perfection can be now found in the real world, mm. but thanks to the monastic communities. Yes. That's yeah. what it seems to be trying to say. Yeah. We can have all that other world beauty. Yes. But you're now going to find it yeah. in the world of the um, the monastic, the monastic church. churches. Yeah. yeah. We've now reached twenty second and mm. penultimate. Yeah. We're nearly there. <laughs> and it's really a repeat of the previous one with a little more detail. Yeah, it? it is. In this one, um, it's an island which has a church on it, and the church houses this secluded cleric, like a hermit. Yeah, really. yeah. You would imagine something of that sort who is deep in prayer, and they go up to the door of the church. They knock on the door. Mm -hmm. Um, but instead of the cleric coming out, this bird comes out and talks to them and carries messages between them and the, the praying cleric. And the message comes back that, yes, they're welcome to stay there overnight. So they do that. And in the morning, they're given food by a heavenly messenger who also tells them, you can't stay here. Your, Your resurrection, resurrection is not in this place. Yeah. <laughs> So now they get manna from heaven. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wonder if they're fed by birds like Elijah, who was fed by ravens in the desert. Mm. But I think it's all part of this allegory. Yeah, yeah. That um, through prayer, yes. you will be fed. You yes, know, you'll it's be given. the um, bread, literally bread from, from heaven. heaven. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's just compounding the message mm. in now, isn't mm. it? It just keeps repeating it. Yeah. And finally, we mm. get to the last island. Well, here on the last island, they meet yet another holy man. Um, this one says that he was a disciple, but that he deserted Jesus and that he is being kept alive and fed on this island until doomsday. Um, but again, he greets them and he offers them hospitality. But instead of the manna from heaven, it's very specific. This time it's bread and fish. Very symbolic. Absolutely. Very uh, redolent of all the Jesus stories. And they finally get their prophecy. Hooray! And told what will happen to them. What's going to happen to them? They'll be met by a very specific. Oh, yeah. it is. They'll be met by a boat off Spain. Yeah. It sounds like a travel agent. <laughs> you know? And the religious members of the crew will end up founding a church in Rome. That's so this is stuff. very clear. Mm. Also, it's connecting it not with the Celt so called Celtic church, mm. but with the Roman church. Church of Rome, absolutely. Their servant, though, will go to live in Britain and he will pass on the story to a bishop mm. who will tell it to a son of Coleman mm. on Arran. Yeah. So, yep, they get to be famous in the Christian world mm -hmm. and the servant communicates the story to the Scottish and Irish monks. Yes. So, they've done it. The end! Hooray! Well, that is the end of the voyage of the Ikora. Um, and you might wonder why we've been saving another one, whale doom, till last, even though the Ikora seems the most Christian of and the Emerald. It is the most it Christian. It very much is, and it's, it's also the most cosmopolitan almost mm. of the Imrov journeys as well. But Mildon is, well, it's sort of the best, you know, we want to keep up till last, but also mm. all of these other shorter tales refer to refer it. To exactly, yeah. yeah. They seem almost not exactly derivative of it, but certainly conscious of Mildoon as the exemplar, if you like. The form. It, it is an interesting Imrov in its own right. Yeah. And I wanted to talk about that just a bit more in a mm. few minutes. I think it needs to be acknowledged for what it is yeah. in its own terms. Mm. But one of the things I was noting is it's still interesting that it's set in a world which he in world in which heaven and hell are accessible on earth. Yeah. Um, you can get there in a boat. You can. Yeah. Which is interesting, I think, because it's on a par with the always imminent presence of the 
of the other world mm. in all the old Irish tales. They're yeah. always, they're never another world. Yes. They're just other. Yeah, exactly. They're and just here, foreign. <laughs> and so you've got heaven and hell and here just other. Yeah. Yeah. But um, there's more to it that hmm. I've just been thinking about, even when we're talking about. Yeah. However, you've got these, there are alterations from the other world tales. There are, yeah. Just, just for fun, we've listed a few. Mm. So for a start, um, the birds, which are, we keep saying they're Exactly, they're, they're so always important. There. Yeah. But now they've become angels or human souls. Yeah, well, they're, they're getting towards being angels. I think they're still very much bird-shaped, you know. Oh, yes, yeah. definitely bird-shaped. I keep yeah. seeing these Egyptian birds. Car birds, uh, yeah, car yeah. Birds with, you know, birds with human heads. Yeah. I'm not sure that's what's meant. Yeah, yeah. I think they're genuinely birds. Birds, yeah. And then, of course, the feast, at which yeah. everyone gets what they want. Mm. Unfortunately, it's changed a little. It's now well, mass or communion. Yes, yes exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's not fair. Yeah. But I'm just thinking originally when it starts out with that wonderful cauldron. Yeah, yeah. Which we were thinking, um, oh, it was a year or more ago mm. when we were talking about the Dagda. Yes. And yeah. his leather cauldron. And yeah. We almost felt that the cauldron of abundance was originally the invention of beer. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's a bit of a difference from the invention of beer yeah, to, to the mass. Yeah. That has changed a little. It has, rather, yeah. And of course, the ethereal music mm. has become psalms, which. Yes. Plain song is very ethereal. I yeah. actually like plain song. Yeah, and again, is often sung by birds. You know, what plain song. No, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, our Imrov music. Yeah, no. <laughs> I just was thinking of waking up to the sort of plain song of the birds. It would be that'd be very strange. It would be, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, then of course you've got all these biblical characters who've been poked in and yeah. fitted in. From Elijah to Enoch to fallen disciples. I know, yes. But again, as we've pointed out before, they seem to take the place of the ancestor figures or the, mm. you know, the people from whom you're descended, the ancestors, the other world figures. And it seems that, again, they're just another form of ancestor, mm. you know? Well, that's just, I suppose they are. Yeah. And especially Enoch, who exactly. is the, one of the patriarchs. Yeah. But the biggest thing for me is that this difference that you've suddenly got this images of deliberate and everlasting punishment. Mm which really jar. Yes, they really do. And that's, I think, also very particular to this text yeah. rather than the other in Rova. You know, that it really is this this idea of the everlasting torture. You which know. just is not there. Mm, no, in, it, in imagery, in, in images or experiences mm, of people encountering the other world. Yeah, yeah. I understand it, but yeah. it just still it jumps is out. a shock, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And of course, apples. Yeah. Be happiness and healing mm -hmm. and not eternal separation from the divine and, mor and mortality. Yeah, yeah. And a good old man and Anne and his apples. Mm. But I think it's when we put this particular Imrolf into a historical context, mm. it, it starts to become even more interesting. Yeah, um, I mean, one of the factors that we did touch on before is the influence of the Day order. Within Irish Christianity, again, I don't think it represents mainstream Christianity, but there was this culture which favoured austerity and the kind of the self-flagellation, if you like. Um, and that, of course, is particularly all of this observance of Sunday, that that has to be the most holy of holies. So the influence is definitely recognisable. Oh, there. it's definitely there. Yeah, I just, I'm just not sure how much it represents a mainstream view or how much it's an ecclesiastical view. I suspect you know. it's the second, but it's it's yeah. having an in it's having an influence on mm. the ecclesiastical view. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. You know, if you compare this to the previous one we looked at, yeah, it's quite marked. Yes, it is very. It's very different from Colin Kill's sort of very robust approach oh, to yes. monasticism. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. This is something difficult. And um, I think it's also interesting, although we're comparing not like with like mm. 
when we look at the Dante imagery. Yeah. I mean, the Inferno in some ways is an excellent parallel. I mean, mm. I know that represents a 13th century struggle between the power of papacy and the Holy Roman Empire. Mm. Dante sets a, a, an apparently Christian paradigm in a deeply classical imagery. Yeah. But um, how would you draw parallels? Well, we have talked a lot about this, you know, conscious project of integrating kind of, if you like, native Irish characters and imagery into a Christian tradition. Mm. And I think right, more right going from, on. Yeah, right from the beginning of Imrod yeah. Bran, we've seen that coming in. Oh, very strongly. But yeah. I think there's something more going on here. There though, is. One of the things, like you said, about the struggle between the Roman, the Church of Rome and the Holy Roman Empire, in our text, I think what we have is slightly different struggle that there is a difference between the Irish Christian Church and the Church of Rome mm. and that there is very much struggles for dominance and obedience and yeah. all the rest and theological discussions going on and it does end with the, in this text mm. with the uh, brothers going off to form a church in Rome exactly and that's very definite and I think that that's very deliberate you yeah. know that it says that you know what's important is that the people who have witnessed these visions then are part of the Church of Rome. Rome, yeah. You know, rather than the sort of the native uh, Christian church. It's only the servant who goes back. Yes, it's only the, the low status one who goes back to uh, the British Isles, as it were. Yeah. So I think there is something in here about that struggle between, you know, the Church of Rome and an indigenous or native Irish church. But we have also seen over the course of these Imrova that there is a non-Christian and a Christian uh, shift going on as well. You know, yeah, they, it really shows up in the Imrova. It does, it? yeah, more than anything, I think. Of course, there's some other slightly less important mm. sim similarity. Of course, Virgil did predict the coming of a wonder child. Oh yeah, but then so did Malinor. <laughs> you know, we had the prediction that the prophecy of Mungan right in the very yeah. first Imrova. And of course, Dante's hell is in the centre of the earth rather than the other world or the yes. or just push it out to sea. Exactly, yes. We, we prefer going overseas at this point in, in our literature. But he did some of his imagery is mm. equally surprising. Yeah, yeah. Um, and which would shock us today in mm. the sense that he is at the very lowest hell. He puts the three worst sinners in, in you know, history. Of all time, yeah. And, yeah, Judas, one can understand. Yeah. But Brutus and Cassius? <laughs> so maybe we should be surprised at exactly. some of the things we find yeah, and that are odd to us today. Exactly. And, I mean, that does make a, quite a neat parallel with what the, the Irish stories are doing in bringing uh, Enoch and Elijah together with Manon and Mungan. <laughs> I think one of the things that really hits you when you when you uh, talk about this this uh, Imrov is that it is designed deliberately as an allegory of the spiritual journey of the soul to redemption. Yeah. And you can't get away from that. No, um, although it does sort of slightly uh, jar because it still brings in some of the, if you like, the earlier Irish symbols within the islands that might have lost some of their initial meaning yeah. but they're, they still make part of the story because you can't have an emerald without them and it makes it quite difficult it because does. it doesn't they don't quite sit together no, no. i mean it's not quite pilgrim's progress mm. you know which is uh you know the is the journey of the soul yes so i personally love Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> i think it's the first dungeons and dragons adventure yeah yeah <laughs> but if you follow it through and I, it's, as i've been talking i've been thinking about it mm. looking at it as 
for what it's meant to be for itself, yeah. a, a Christian journey. Yeah. He starts off going, we deserve to go to hell. Yes, yeah. And he really means it. He cannot find redemption, particularly Lacan, yeah. who just, whatever they tell him, that he's all right, he's yeah. not going to hell, he's done his penance, he goes, yeah. I don't believe you. Mm, I still, mm. de still deserve to go to hell. Yeah. And he's saying that all the way through. Yeah. And gradually he does go to hell. Yes. And he has to, so the, the torments and the tortures that he sees mm. are really what he, he, he wants. Yeah, what he wants for himself. himself. Yeah. He feels he deserves. Yeah, yeah. And he will not, he's going into a very dark place yeah. and it's really the dark journey of the soul, mm. into the, the night journey of the soul. Yeah. And it's not until he reaches the bottom and he finds himself in that sea of death. The abode with of death, the heads, yeah. And then the worms start mm. eating into the boat. Yeah, yeah. And which almost represents his own body. Exactly, yes. That he suddenly says, no, mm. I don't want this. Yeah. Yeah. And he accepts redemption, mm. and then it suddenly goes up again into this, these, uh, you know, into these ecclesiastical fragments yeah, yeah. where he is given the gifts of grace one yeah, by one. And yeah. I'm sure you could actually follow it through in terms of the different sacraments. I'm which sure. I haven't yeah. done so, and I've no intention of doing no, so. No. But I think you could probably find them. Yeah, there. yeah. Um, so it makes an interesting everyman journey yeah. or pilgrim journey. Yeah, yeah. Um, it still shocks me though with these awful punishments. Yeah, I think it's just so hard to get past that disproportionality of the punishments for you know that one where the the man who stole his brother's horse, but he's mm. punished for riding on a Sunday. And I think that is just very shocking to us now. So it can be hard to kind of see past that. And I think that it is important because. That is something that's arisen from this very kind of austere mm -hmm, um, mm. sort of form of Christianity, which probably does involve a lot of that self-flagellation mm. and saying, no, I'm a miserable sinner. I can never be redeemed, you know. Yeah, it just struck me that we, you know, one takes seriously, whether yeah. you believe it or not, mm. the, the story of Pilgrim's Progress mm. or the Everyman stories. Mm. And this is a very little known story, mm. but as a Christian allegory, it's actually quite successful. Yeah, it does actually follow that pattern very it well. It follows it well, but mm. it just is odd. Yes, yes. Um, but it's been an enjoyable journey, as mm. long as we don't have to go down into the sort of... Uh, into the abode of death again. No, not there, thank you. <laughs> I think I'll stick to the apple trees. Oh yeah, much and nicer. And the, the apple trees of Mananong with the silver bells. Yeah, the... giant baklava flowers. Oh yeah, the giant baklava flowers, yeah. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's been an interesting journey. Yeah, yeah, it has. And next time we get to... We're finally going to get to Mileson, although we have already said we're going to definitely do this in two because there's quite a lot of it there's and quite it's, it's an allegory of a different type entirely. it is yeah and and we will probably be sort of looking back through all of these texts that we've been well, looking I at through Maildon that hasn't been too complicated <laughs> I don't think so well I hope you, you've enjoyed uh, this journey oh, certainly I feel like I feel better about the text now than when we started yeah yeah accepting it for what it is exactly yeah whether you like it or not thank you for listening to Ogilaf Nanagus, Conversations about Irish Mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.